Well, glad to have you here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 as we're going verse by verse through the book of Mark, and we have entered into chapter 2 this morning. I don't know if we have any New Year's resoluters in our presence today. I'm not one of those, but if you are, I would ask you to consider some of these resolutions that I ran across this week. The dates may be a little off because they're from different years, but Jay Stewart said, I have decided to leave my past behind me. So if I owe you money, I'm sorry, but I've moved on. (laughs) I kind of like that resolution. Abby Russell said, my New Year's resolution this year is to finally throw away those three empty Domino's pizza boxes sitting in the bottom of my fridge. This was my resolution last year too, but 2018 feels like a year for change. Rex Hupke said, my New Year's resolution is to get really into essential oils and then make sure I bring up the fact that I'm really into essential oils in every conversation I have until the end of time. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? And this person was anonymous, but it is, it is my favorite. My New Year's resolution is to simply remember to write 2019 instead of 2018 on my checks. And if I do that in 2019, I've had a good year. Well, as we turn the page from 2018 to 2019, we're turning the page in our sermon series from chapter one to chapter two, but it's more than that. There is a turning of a page in Jesus's ministry as we're going to discover from this story today. And so we're going to read through the whole story, beginning with verse 1, all the way through verse 12, and then we'll go back verse by verse and dissect it a little bit. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And by the way, did you know that Capernaum was Jesus's home? Some would say, no, I thought it was Bethlehem. Well, actually, Jesus was just born in Bethlehem. Some would say, I thought it was Nazareth. Well, actually, Jesus, that was his boyhood home. But apparently his adulthood home was Capernaum or Capernaum. And so he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Why were there so many people? Why was there a large crowd here in chapter two? Because of chapter one. You remember chapter one, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed the leper. He had cast out demons. He had done the sensational and the sensational always draws a crowd, but it rarely keeps a crowd. Within two years, this crowd is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus was never that enthralled by the crowd. Actually, whenever he had big crowds, he would often speak against the big crowd and say, well, uh, I'm just looking for people who will be totally committed to me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's what I'm after. And the crowds dwindled. He wasn't as impressed with big crowds as we are, though we are for big crowds, not for numbers sake, not for crowds sake, but because every person, every person represents a soul. And so are we after a lot of people? We are after a lot of people, but not for venture's sake, but for the kingdom's sake and for soul's sake. What is a profit to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Souls matter. And so do we want big numbers? We do, but not for numbers' sake, for people's sake, for the kingdom's sake. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, did you know your faith can be seen? Interesting line. 
when Jesus saw their faith. James said, faith without action is dead. Sometimes faith can be seen. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I admit that if there was an instant replay button in heaven, and there were 10 biblical stories I could watch on a screen, I could just push the button, this might be one of them. Noah and the flood, all the animals coming to the ark, I'd like to see that. The creation of the world, Genesis 1, that'd be worth pushing. But I'd like to see this event. I want to point out three characters of people, three crowds of people that teach us three lessons and ask us three questions out of this story. The first group that I want to talk about are the friends. No, not the TV show, but the four friends that brought the man to Jesus. Look back at verse three and four. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. These four men led their friend to Jesus. One of the most indispensable characteristics of a disciple of Jesus is they lead their friends to Jesus. They point their friends to Jesus. In reality, the entire point of Bible history from Genesis 3.15 to the end of Revelation is to point us to Jesus. Moses and the prophets, it was all about pointing us to Jesus. John the Baptist, we learn in Mark 1, was all about pointing us to Jesus. The first call of the first disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, was all about pointing people to Jesus. The last call of the disciples you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, is all about pointing people to Jesus. The scriptures even show us the natural instinct of a new believer is to point their friends to Jesus. In John chapter one, this is what John did. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. If you skip down to verse 41, look how, uh, look how Andrew handled becoming a follower of Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And what did he do? He brought him to Jesus. Skip down to verse 43 and see what Philip did when he became a Christian. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip... He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He was pointing people to Jesus. Use your imagination for a second. Back to Mark 2. Can you imagine what it took to get this paralytic to Jesus? The effort they had to go through, the creativity. They had to pick up an adult man create this bed. They had to press through the crowds. 
they had to walk upstairs to get to the top of a roof, carrying an adult man to the top of a roof. They had to find a shovel. They had to start digging through a roof. They had to get some ropes. They had to tie these ropes. They had to test these ropes. They had to lower the man. They interrupted the sermon, and they risked being ridiculed, being humiliated, and possible rejection in front of a big crowd and in front of Jesus. Think of the effort these men went to bring their friend to Jesus. If I was to title the friends section, I would title it, Whatever It Takes. Would you say that with me, those three words? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to bring your loved ones, your classmates, your coworkers, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your friends, your family, these men did whatever it took. Matt Summers is leading a new church like this one in Joliet, Illinois right now in an area where churches are dying and struggling. But his church is winning the loss to Jesus. People far from God are coming close to God. And it was a morning like this, and a woman recently came forward to give her life to Christ and be baptized, and everyone rejoiced and were glad. But there was one problem. When she came forward to give her confession, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. She pulled up her pant leg, and she revealed she was wearing an ankle bracelet from the corrections facility. And there was one problem with that. She couldn't get that bracelet wet. She was about to enter the waters of baptism. And so what did that church do? They grabbed several men out in the crowd who were strong and they got her in the baptistry and they tilted her upside down and baptized her upside down except for that one foot. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Our grand opening is in three Sundays. We haven't even officially, legally begun as a church yet, by the way. But January 20th, we're going to be having a grand opening. And I just want you to know, we are going to be doing whatever it takes to point people to Jesus. We're going to be passing out postcards. They're going to be mailed to neighborhoods, thousands of them. I believe about 10,000 postcards. There's 2,000 door hangers that are going to be hung up. There's social media advertisements being planned. There's advertisements in the Katy Times. There's advertisements in the Houston Chronicle. We have a guest speaker coming on February 3rd who is a lot better than me. You ought to come for that Sunday. We are going to be doing all sorts of things to bring people to Jesus, but none of those things are a substitution for you and I inviting our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, face-to-face invitations, bringing them here on those grand opening Sundays, whatever it takes. The apostle Paul was a whatever it takes Christian. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Even he admitted not everyone comes. I do all this for my sake. I do all this for venture's sake. Who is Paul doing it for? For the gospel's sake, for the kingdom's sake, for Christ's sake. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. We could put three words over that passage, whatever it takes. Have you heard this? I've heard this in Christian circles lately. We need to love without an agenda. It sounds spiritual, doesn't it? 
love without an agenda. Sounds holy, it sounds good, and I get what they're saying. It's just this, guys. We do have an agenda. We do. And the agenda actually is love. Real love, true love. Tell people about Jesus. And so in a day when the word evangelism and proselytizing are dirty words, we're not going to apologize for the agenda of love and for pointing people to Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes. So you have the friends, but the second group in this story are the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law. Now in Mark, your translation may say scribes. That'd be accurate, teacher teachers of the law. This same story is told in Luke, and it says the Pharisees were also there. Just interesting note, this is the first time the teachers of the law show up, and and they're not going to leave until Jesus dies. Why are they showing up now? They are showing up because Jesus has made a big impact for the kingdom. And anytime you make a big impact, anytime you take a step of faith, anytime you take a risk, anytime you share, anytime you serve, anytime you try to do something for Jesus, there are always going to be critics. Do you know what I'm talking about? They are there in the crowd to criticize. That's why they're there. And they're going to twist every word that Jesus says. They're going to do everything they can to misportray. And they're going to try to make life hard on Jesus. They are there to be critical. Has anybody here ever had a critic in your life? Just raise your, everybody here has had it. If you don't want any critics, don't do anything. Don't try to be anything. Don't do anything for the Lord. Never serve, never share, never sacrifice. Then everybody's going to think you're pretty hunky-dory. But if you ever try to do something, eventually you'll have a critic. How do you handle your critic? Albert Hubbard said to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. Well, Jesus had his share of critics. I want to just, this is kind of a side sermon on top of the sermon. I want to share with you four ways Jesus handled criticism. Just give me five minutes. This could be helpful. Four, I don't think it's comprehensive of how Jesus handled criticism, but here's four things that I know he did do in a quick study of it. Number one, he never reviled back one time. What does revile mean? That's a weird word. It means to criticize in an abusive or angrily harsh manner. People were reviling Jesus, criticizing Jesus. Our instinct is, if you're gonna treat me that way, well, then I'm gonna treat you that way. I'm gonna give you a little taste of your own medicine, or worse, I'm gonna give you a taste of my medicine. If you're gonna, tra- if you're gonna, if you're gonna criticize, if you're gonna do that, here comes the wrath, and I'm gonna change the way I treat you. Well, that's antithetical to who Jesus Christ was. First Peter chapter two says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when we give it back, well, he did this to me, so I did this. Well, she said this, so I'm doing this. When we give it back, we are disobeying the command of Jesus to love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. If you just love those who love you, even the pagans do that. If you just greet those who greet you, how are you any better than anybody else? You're not a light on a hill. You're not a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus never reviled ever in return. Catch this. Just thinking about this. Even before the crucifixion, 
Jesus is handed over to the soldiers. You remember what Peter did, how Peter responded to the soldiers? He grabbed his sword. Do you remember what he did? He swung it and it cut off a soldier's ear. And what did Jesus say? Way to go, bud. Thanks for standing up for me. And what did he say? He grabbed the ear, put it back on and said, we don't play like that. Paraphrase. Followers of me don't play like that. How do you play? When somebody mistreats you, when somebody criticizes you, well, they did this to me, so. He never reviled in return. Number two, he identified the positive to defeat the negative. What does that mean? Jesus had a mission in front of him, which was the positive. He never let the negative take him away from the positive. He identified the mission and he never let it sidetrack him, all the criticism. Now, what are you gonna do someday? What am I gonna do? Am I gonna give up because there's been criticism? Am I I gonna stand before Almighty God someday? He say, why did you give up? Well, there are a few people who criticized me. I couldn't handle it. He stayed on mission. He said, I'm not leaving the mission. You can put me down, you can make up stories, you can misportray me, but I got a bigger mission here and I'm not gonna let the negative take me away from the positive that God has going in my life. And by the way, if you give up because of the criticism, if you throw in the towel because somebody said something about you, who misses out? You do, but who else misses out? Somebody else who you were gonna impact. If those four friends had been criticized before and they decided to give up, they're paralytic friend would have missed out. Somebody's going to miss out if you jump off the mission. Jesus never did that. Best example of that is Nehemiah that I could think of. Nehemiah had the God-given mission of building the wall. One day while he's building the wall of Jerusalem, an enemy comes by and says, can we do coffee at Starbucks, so to speak? And he said, I don't have time for that. I got something more important to do. I'm not going to let you distract me from building the wall to listen to your garbage. Don't let criticism take you off your mission. God has something big for you. Number three, I I couldn't find this. He never argued with his critics, did he? I don't think he ever argued with them. He never argued and tried to convince them, hey, get on my side. I have no passage for this because there isn't one. He just never did it. In Nazareth, apparently he got some criticism when he went back home to his hometown. But what did he do? The passage says they didn't believe. He went on to the next village to preach there. He didn't stay behind. Guys, wait a minute. I got to convince my friends I'm the real deal. He didn't mess with that. He just moved on. But number four, at times he did confront his critics with truth. That's different than arguing. That's different than raising your voice. That's different than sitting there and trying to convince somebody. He just... I'll tell you the truth. When when opportunity arises, he never went out of his way to do it. He did it in this passage. Look at verse eight. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he, he simply said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. He wasn't arguing. He wasn't even trying to convince them. He just told them the truth because the opportunity was there. Remember, when you are criticized, Jesus knows what it's like. But there's a third character in this story. You have, you have the friends, you have the teachers of the law, but the third crowd would be, or person would be Jesus himself. What can we learn from Jesus? I don't know if you caught it in verse five, but really this is the message. This is the text, if we're gonna be true to the text. 
when Jesus saw their faith, by the way, that's plural, their faith, all the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, and then what did he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. And the paralyzed man said, thanks? That's not why I came. And the friend said, whoa, whoa, Jesus, you missed the whole point of why we lowered him through the roof. You missed the whole point. Well, we're going to get a talking to about digging through this fellow's roof afterwards. We're not here to get our sins forgiven. We're here because he has two legs that don't walk. He's a crippled. Jesus, you, you missed the whole point. Do you know what it's like to be paralyzed in that time period under the Roman Empire? You can't get a job. You can't have an income. You can't take care of a family. Jesus, do you have any idea what it's like? We're here to get our most pressing need met. This man thought his most pressing need was his health. And Jesus addressed his most urgent need. What is more important, to be physically healed or to be spiritually healed? What is more important, to be temporarily healed or to be eternally healed? And Jesus is saying, guys, come on. I'm not disconnected. I know why you came. You came to get your legs back. You came to get physically healed. You came lower through the roof, friends. I know I'm not dense. I get it. You thought your most pressing need was your health. I'm telling you, your most pressing need is you have a sin problem, and we all have a sin problem. Amen. Actually, sin is not the problem. Unforgiven sin is the problem. And he is saying, you thought the physical was the deal. I'm telling you the spiritual was the deal. And a little harsher way to say it is simply this. What good is it to have two healthy legs and walk straight into hell? If you get your legs healed but go to hell, what good was that? And so what's Jesus saying? The most important need for all of us is actually the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you may not think so. I'm, I've met people that don't think so. I've met people that don't think they have a sin problem. Have you ever met somebody like that who's never done anything wrong? Don't point to the person next to you. That would, be, that would not give you a good day. Ran into some people who don't think they have a sin problem. Ran into some people who know they have a sin problem, but they don't think it's that big of a deal. They have no idea what that's going to cause someday in life. But Jesus is saying, I have a perspective you don't have. I see sin in a way you don't see it. I see how it destroys your life. I see how it hurts your friends. I see how it hurts your family. And more than that, I know what it will do to you for eternity. Trust me, your sin problem is the most urgent problem. But just to prove that I really did do it, verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. What gave Jesus that authority? Well, those same hands that pointed to that man to get up are the same hands that later are stretched out and are nailed to a cross. And that gave him the right. That gave him the authority to say your sins are forgiven. And all the teachers in the law are mad, are mad in the crowd. And they're saying, who gave you that right? It's our job to teach people how to get forgiveness of sins. 
and Jesus, it's complicated. Forgiveness of sins is complicated. You have to pack your bags, take vacation days, go to Jerusalem, go to the temple, get ceremonially clean, stand in line, buy an animal. The priest kills the animal, blood's everywhere. Forgiveness of sins, that's complicated. You can't just say your sins are forgiven unless you're God. Wait a minute. Are you saying? And so you have everybody in the crowd who's disappointed at this point. The paralytic's wondering if he's going to be healed. His friends are wondering, did we just waste our time? The crowd is disappointed because they thought they were going to see a healing, get to take a video of it on their phone, post it on Instagram. The homeowner of the home is disappointed because he's wondering if insurance is going to cover that hole in the roof now. But Jesus says, you will not be disappointed someday. The forgiveness of sins. You know why God doesn't wink at sin? Because of what it cost his son. That's why God doesn't wink at sin. In a horrific story, and you may remember it, last summer, in July in Cocoa Beach, Florida, there was a man in a small pond who for 10 minutes struggled to stay above the water. He ended up drowning. But during the drowning, there were five teenage boys on the shore who watched and took a video of it on their phone, never helping the man one time. It was a two-minute video. They posted it on YouTube. And while the man is struggling in the video to get air, you can hear in the background the teenagers laughing and ridiculing the man. Even after the man drowned, they didn't call the cops or call anybody. They just left and posted it on YouTube. And it just kind of makes you sick, doesn't it? And you start to think, what kind of world do we live in? How did we get to this point in our culture where we can just watch a man drown and do nothing about it. No charges were given. There were no laws in Florida against that, though I think they're in the process of making a law. But they were interrogated by police, and as one of the teenage boys sat there and was interrogated, he laughed at the officer while his mother sat beside him crying, unable to figure out how did he get to this point where he doesn't help a man drowning. But even as we say that, there are drowning people all around us. And what are we going to do? They're drowning spiritually. They have a sin problem. And it's not just the sins, it's the unforgiven sins. And you may be in here today and you say, I don't know where to go about this. And Jesus says, follow me, believe in me, put your faith and trust in me confess me. And you may say, well, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what direction to take my life. He says, turn around, follow me and repent. You may say, but I feel like I'm drowning. He says, drown with me, get in the waters of baptism. And when you rise, you will rise in the newness of life. That's our prayer for you. And that's our prayer for everybody in this area. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you teach us an important aspect as our prayers are often centered around our health or finances or all these pressing needs that we have. You show us in this story what our greatest need is, and that is the forgiveness of sins. If we know anybody outside of the security of Christ, if we know anybody who doesn't have their sins forgiven, I pray that we would be a people, we would be a church that does whatever it takes to point them to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.